When I was in uh, junior high, I was playing a video game. This is back in the days of Sega Genesis. And I was sitting in my bedroom and I was playing Sega Genesis. And um, I was playing a game called Flashback. And I still remember uh, because my mom and my sister came in and said, hey, can we talk for a minute? And so I, I paused the game. And uh, really, from, you know, I couldn't really tell you exactly what they said. I, I just remembered uh, staring at the, at the TV screen. So I, I remember staring at that pause screen. And, and what they were going to share with me uh, just struck me so deep to my core that uh, that image is kind of etched in my head. I mean, if you are familiar with Psychogenesis, first of all, you know, um, thank you for making me not feel that old. Um, but if you're familiar with it, you may even know that Flashback, it's an obscure game. It's just some random game that I rented, yet it's etched in my mind because of the news that I heard. I could tell you that the character had blue pants and a brown top, and I was on this, the second level of the game, which was split up into a top and bottom, and I was up on the top right, and there was an enemy bottom left, and I was trying to figure out how to attack, because I, I stared at that screen, because the news that followed when my, my mom and my sister came in uh, was to tell me that my parents were getting divorced. And that was the first I'd heard of it, and I was oblivious. I had no idea this was coming. This was just out of left field. So I just kind of sat and stared. And um, I, I don't know if I just had a brave face on and just kind of this, this uh, natural image of strength and power that you'd think I would have. I'm just kidding. Uh, I, I don't know what the cause was, but uh, based on my mom and my sister said, hey, you know, um, we're kind of help cope through this. I'm, I'm going to take your sister shopping. And so they went and spent some time together. And they're like, are you okay? Okay, well, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm sure is what I said or something of the like and assured them of that. Uh, but, but honestly, I wasn't. And, and so I had a few you know, moments to myself just kind of home alone, just trying to process all this. And in that moment... I felt hopeless, that there was uh, no hope for a better tomorrow. And it just my, my world had just been rocked in a way that I had never prepared for and never expected. Uh, fortunately, um, that, that sense, that feeling didn't stay. And very quickly, I began to see what life could look like post-divorce and, and to see my parents still loved me and that there's still relationship and, and yes, broken, but we're still a family and that there's, a, a, there's still a picture of a better future. And so the question I want to ask you this morning is, what's your story? What's that point in your life where you felt hopeless? I'm sure we've all had those moments, maybe uh, much more severe than finding out your parents are, are getting divorced, or maybe um, lighter. It's not kind of a competition to see who's got the worst war story. But I think we can all relate in one way or another to a, a sense of feeling hopeless, Perhaps there was some kind of family turmoil going on or, or health issues, whether your own or those of a loved one. Um, maybe a, a death in the family. Maybe there was a secret that had been uh, kept from you for years, and all of a sudden that secret's revealed and just rocked your world. And all of a sudden you're like, man, I just have no glimpse for what a better future could look like. And see, I think that's one of the things that can help to grow our hope. When we can have a, a, a vision, a glimpse of a better future, our hope grows. As I began to see what, what my relationship could still continue to be like with my mom and my dad as we move forward in this now broken home, I, I began to get some hope. Okay, you know, we're still mom and dad. You know, still, there's still my parents and, and there's still relationship and there's, there's still good things that will come from this. When you're able to experience joy and laughter and peace in the midst of loss, pain, and heartache, again, you begin to see Hope for better. If you've ever been at a funeral where it's truly a celebration of that person's life, maybe there's a piece of that hopelessness when you're, you're, you're saying goodbye to them and you realize you're not going to see them at least for a while, depending on where uh, they stood with God and where you stand with God. 
but you can also celebrate their life, and there's these moments of sharing stories and these uh, moments where you're, you're you know, telling jokes and laughing because of, of the joy they brought to your life, and all of a sudden, maybe this glimpse, this glimmer of, hey, maybe there's something better. Maybe there is something to be hopeful for here. If you're in a situation that just seems hopeless, all of a sudden, someone comes along who you know is greater than your situation, who you know is greater than what you're facing, and they do something or they say something that make it clear that they're on your side. Imagine getting into a, uh, you know, going back and forth on, on the playground when you were a kid or the kid in the neighborhood, and all of a sudden you see your dad's car coming down the street. You kind of stand up a little straighter. You're like, all right, you know, I, I got someone in my corner. I got someone backing me right now. A, whole, a picture of something better grows our hope. If you're in a losing battle and all of a sudden you see the re- your reinforcements coming, your hope grows. If you do poorly on a test in school and all of a sudden you, you, you are reminded of your professor's graciousness, your hope grows. If you do poorly on a performance review at work, but all of a sudden you remember that your company invests in its people. And so you've seen time and time again people who have done poor in their reviews, but they've been poured into instead of poured out of the company. Your hope grows as you see this glimmer of this better future. Maybe even laid off from your job, but all of a sudden some of the next step possibilities become a little clearer. Maybe a little more tangible. And Maybe your next steps aren't laid out yet, but just the fact that you could see this is what a better future could look like, our hope grows. Some of us are, are, are better at being hopeful than others, right? I'm sure you can think of people in your life, like, man, I wish I could be hopeful like them. That, that they could be dealt the worst hand in life, and, and man, they just got a smile on their face, and they're hopeful. They can still see a better tomorrow. Some of us really struggle with that. Some of us have past wounds and battle scars that have smudged our lenses with which we see this world. And so something joyous and and bright and awesome can be right before us, but we can only see it through smudged, darkened lenses because of our past uh, scars and battle wounds. But in some aspect of our lives or another, don't we all hope for something better? I mean, you, you put in there what matters most in your life right now. Maybe there's some things that are facing you down that you just, man, I, I hope for better. Maybe you've even asked this whole question about why, why am I here? What's life all about? What's the purpose in, in the, the day-to-day grind? And you're hoping, hey, I hope there's something better. We've been in the middle of a, uh, we just started a new series called Engaging Jesus, a journey through the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is found in chapters 5 through 7 of the book of Matthew. Uh, that, that's where we're going to be here this morning. And in our story, last week, we are talking about how Jesus has been doing all these awesome things. He's been teaching, he's been healing people, he's been casting out demons, and word is getting out, and so people are gathering around. People are like, hey, if you see him walking by, there's something intriguing about Jesus. And people are like, I want to I follow him. I want to see what he has to say. I want to see what he's going to do. And so a crowd's been gathering around Jesus as he's been doing these different things. And I imagine some people there probably thought something like this as they're witnessing what he's doing. If he can do that for them, I wonder what he can do for me. Maybe you just saw someone who was blind brought to Jesus, and he gives them their sight back. Their sight is restored. And you're just blown away. All of a sudden, whatever you're struggling with, like, hey, I, man, I'm just looking for a job, but he gave that guy his sight back. I mean, this guy can pull off some stuff. 
mean, your hope probably begins to grow and, and your excitement to go meet Jesus grows. Imagine that was one of the reasons why some people were pursuing Jesus. If he can do that, then I wonder what he can do for me. No one else can, can help me in my situation. Maybe, maybe Jesus can help me. There's this hope for something better. Even if we know nothing more about Jesus, it's already starting to sound pretty intriguing to hear about some of the things that he's done. And, and that's what those who are surrounding him, some of those who are surrounding him during the, when he's uh, preaching the Sermon on the Mount, were probably thinking why, why they were there. They wanted to know more about him. And we talked about last week that um, why this is so significant is because as we look at the life of Jesus as a whole, who he claims to be, the life that he lives, the statements people make about him that he doesn't correct, it becomes clear that he is saying, I am God. And if that's a true statement, then what he says matters, and then what he does matters, and what he calls us to matters. If he's not, then we can dismiss it all. In each one of our timelines, there have been people who have uh, made, made themselves famous for a day or a week or a month, or maybe they got the names written in the history books for being whack jobs who claim to be God, and they're dead. And maybe they went out in a blaze of glory and, and other followers are gone. You know, and these are some of those sad, unfortunate tales. But just saying you're God doesn't make you God, unfortunately. I know it's bad news for a lot of us here this morning, but just saying it doesn't make it so. That's where we look at the life of Jesus. And the more I've continued to do that, the more I'm convinced that he backed up who he was believed to be. He backed up who he claimed to be. We say that, yes, he is God. And if he's God, then what he says matters. He changes everything. That was kind of the heart of last week, that Jesus changes everything. And, and there's hope to be found in him because of that. If you have hope to be right before God, if you feel like God uh, doesn't like you, if you feel like God uh, has it out for you, if you feel like God is a kid with a magnifying glass frying ants from heaven, you probably have hope that, that the God uh, that you could be right with God in a good relationship. Maybe there's, there's, there's turmoil in your home and you're just hoping to be right in a relationship with others. Maybe you just are longing for a sense of peace and joy and fulfillment in your life. There's hope to be found in Jesus for all these things. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. That's where we're going to be here this morning. As you turn there, I want to remind you about some things about the Sermon on the Mount that we, we hit on last week. Uh, first one is this, that the Sermon on the Mount is not a checklist of how to be saved, but a picture of how the saved live. So this isn't a checklist of, okay, what, what do I need to do to be with God in heaven? What do I need to do to be seen as righteous, made right in the eyes of God? The Sermon on the Mount is not a checklist of here's all the stuff you have to go and do. It's actually just the other way around. It's saying, because of a relationship in Jesus, because you're following Jesus, this is then what you go and do. And so it's this picture of here's what our lives should look like. And so if, if you, you, as we walk through this series, if you come across moments, you're like, well, I see that picture, and I, I see some ways that my life doesn't line up. The, the, the heart isn't all of a sudden like, well, man, I, I must not be a Christian. Well, no, it's, it's here's an aspect of our life that we can surrender to God. And, and bring into alignment with how God would ask us to live. So it's a, not a checklist of how to be saved, but a picture of how the saved live. Number two, it's not a trip of guilt, but a journey of instruction and conviction. It's not a trip of guilt, but a journey of instruction and conviction. There may be some aspects of the Christian life for those who are followers of Jesus that you've never heard before. 
You've never been told these things. You've never read about them in, in, in Scripture. And hey, you know, so when you come across those moments, don't, don't think you, 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 guilt is not from God. Guilt is, is our response, I think, sometimes when we see the ways that, that we're, we're not following him or not walking in his footsteps. And, and we're offered forgiveness in Jesus and, and redemption. We can, we can change our steps. We can be instructed and convicted by what we're going to read here in the Sermon on the Mount. Last week, I, I gave this image of a French fry. I asked the, the, the famous question that we all need to answer for ourselves at some point in our lives. When is a French fry a French fry? And for me, I believe it's the moment after it's cut from the potato. So you have that, that cold, hard potato that's now cut into a, hopefully a waffle fry. That's really the best of all the fries. Or the curly fry. You know, we, we can uh, uh, spend some time afterwards debating. Um, but as soon as it's cut, it's become a fry. It, it's a fry. That's its title. That's its being. That's its existential existence. I don't know. Whatever. It's a fry. <laughs> and that, that's like being justified in Jesus. When we trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, we are pure. We are righteous. We are forgiven. That's true of us. That, that's an accurate description of us. When God sees us, if we are trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sin, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. But Steve, there's still aspects of my life that aren't in line with God's word, that aren't honoring to him, and there's still some messes in my life. Well, that fry's not done either. It still needs to be put in that hot oil and warmed up and heated up and crisp that beautiful golden brown and put a little salt on top, and then, man, that's what we're longing for. And that's that, the Bible calls it, or kind of the theological term would be sanctification, being made to be like Jesus. And so we are a disciple, we are forgiven, we are perfected in Jesus, even though there's still a process of being perfected. The call for us today, then, is to engage with Jesus, to engage with the person of Jesus. Remember, he's, he's speaking to his disciples here. Uh, that, that's kind of a, his initial audience, but there is a crowd that is gathering around, predominantly probably a Jewish crowd. But there's a crowd that wants to hear from him and see what, what does he have to say. And so if you can identify with the disciples, you see yourself as someone who's, who's been walking with Jesus, uh, um, I, I invite you to consider this list of, of the eight Beatitudes we went through last week, these blessings, and say, is this like me? Is this, is this a picture of my life? Can I see myself as a peacemaker, as being merciful, as being humble? Walk through those. And the challenge last week was just find one of those eight and say, you know, here's an aspect where I don't feel like I'm, I'm that's an accurate picture of me. And, and engage with the person of Jesus and seek what he says in his word. Okay, here's how I can grow in that. And for those who maybe identify more with the crowd, we're like, hey, I'm not sure what to think of Jesus. I'm still kind of checking this all, all out. I'm, I'm kind of trying to get some questions answered. I, I'd invite you to turn to John chapter 1, or any of the Gospels for that, for that matter. But um, we looked a little bit last week at John chapter 1. You can go online and listen to the message again. Uh, if you missed it last week, you can listen, it, listen to it there or on the app. Um, and engage with the person of Jesus, who, who he claims to be, who John says that he is. And begin to ask some of those questions of, is he really the Son of God? So that was up to Matthew chapter 12, or verse 12. Uh, we're going to be Matthew 5, 13. This is Jesus continuing to teach. So he went through the Beatitudes. Now here he is in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if, the salt, uh, if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. The city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. 
and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that, that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And so while there's this mixed audience, I think it's safe to say that the, these initial statements are, are poised towards his disciples, towards those who have already said, I'm going to follow you, Jesus. They're exploring and believing that, hey, this is the Messiah we've been waiting for. So those who are following him, those whose hope is already in Jesus, he would say, it'd be a true statement to say that you are salt of the earth and light of the world. Salt of the earth and light of the world. And what's interesting about this is our reality as salt and light. If you stop and think about what does it mean for a follower of Jesus to be salt and light, we have to think about it in the context of others. We can't disengage. We can't think about it just in our relationship with God. We have to think about being salt and light with others in mind. Because it doesn't just say, hey, you are salt and you are light. It says you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. We would say at the end of verse 16 that the heart is so that others may see. So that others may see. So we have to look at this with a mindset that every time we think about what does it mean to be the salt earth or the, the light of the world, we have to ask, how does this impact those around me? How does this make a, a, a difference in the life of others? For what purpose? You see, so they may see from our lives and give God glory. So to be salt and light is to reveal one's hope in Jesus to those without so that they may find hope in Jesus. And that's one way we can kind of really sum this up. What does it mean to be salt and light? It, it's to reveal to make known to others our hope in Jesus so that others may see that and find their hope in Jesus. So while we have to be others-minded, others-focused, the, the, the power, the onus is still in, in God's court. He, he's the one where the hope is to be found. But the way that he wants to share that with the world is through his followers saying, hey, my hope is in Jesus. Let me live in a way that makes that known to others so others can know about him. Let's unpack that a little bit. Again, we need to remain others-focused and drawing others to God as we look at what does it mean to be salt and light. But one of the things that comes to mind is salt is a flavoring. Salt is a flavoring. If you spent any time in, in this passage, um, you probably came to a point of, hey, as you look back, um, when, when Jesus would have said this, the context that he said it in, the community he said it in, um, yes, salt is a flavoring, it probably wouldn't have been one of the first things they thought of. That this probably wasn't the, the, the main intent of the phrase, be salt of the earth, but there's a truth to be found here nonetheless that I, I want to hit on. When we look at salt as a flavoring, it enhances the flavor of other food. Um, and so we can ask this question, how do we as disciples of Jesus flavor the earth? How do we enhance the flavor of others? One thing we can do is, is encourage them in what is good. Encourage them in what is good. Like so many times when we see those who think differently than us, when we see those um, who aren't pursuing God, we have a hard time acknowledging the good that's already in their lives. I don't know why that is. And so one of the things, if we're going to be salt, if we're going to be this flavoring, if we're going to enhance the flavor of the world, one of the ways we can do that is by encouraging others in the ways that they're already doing good. Another way we can do that is to help them to connect their story with God's story. This is one of my favorite things. We can help them to connect their story with God's story. In Acts chapter 17, 
the Apostle Paul is in Athens. He finds himself there, and he's, he's uh, talking with a bunch of different people about Jesus. And uh, all of a sudden, they're, they're kind of mocking him. And, and it gets to this point where he's talking about, uh, he sees all these idols that they have in Athens. And they even have this one uh, that, that they want to make sure they had all their bases covered. And they had this one to an unknown God. And so as he's walking throughout the town, he sees this idol to an unknown God. And he says this. He says, you know what? I see that you are religious. And he's being that in, in a good way. I see that you're committed to, to trying to find truth. He sees the good in them and acknowledges that. I see you have this idol to the unknown God. Let me tell you about him. And now he's got a captive audience. He sees their stories of people who want to know truth and, and want to make sure that they have honored God or gods and they're unsure. And so they have some questions, they have some things off in that. But instead of going in and saying, let me tell you why you're wrong about all these idols you have in here, he finds a way to connect their story with God's story. He says, hey, you got this unknown God idol. Let me tell you about him. He is the God of all gods. He is the one true God. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It's a captive audience. They can share the hope that he has in Jesus with them with the hope that they would find that same hope in Jesus. So when salt is a flavor, and we can see that we can connect people's story to God's story. Where, where in the story of others has God left an opening for you to share about him? Where in the story of others? Think about the people in your life right now. For those who are walking with Jesus, even for those who are just kind of exploring who Jesus is. We always say life is a journey. No one should have to walk alone. And maybe you got some friends who are in a similar place right now in your life where you may, maybe don't have the answers, but you got the same questions they're asking. Where are some places that we can connect with others in their journey? Let me give you an example of this. Um, I, I, I've yet to meet, I'm not saying they're out there, but you know, I, I'm, I'm an optimist. I've yet to meet a parent regardless of their beliefs, who didn't have a love for their children, who didn't have a desire to be the best parent that they could be. Whether they knew what that looked like or not, whether they had uh, any background in being a parent or any training, maybe they had a, a, a terrific example of parents, they had a terrible example of parents. Whatever the story, most of the time when I meet someone who's a parent, they share this desire to be a good and loving parent. And there's things in there they're doing that are good and loving, and we can celebrate that with them. And that heart to want to bless their children is an opportunity to tell them about God. Hey, can I tell you about our Father in heaven? Now he wants to bless his children, how he has blessed his children. So how can we connect people's story to God's story as, a, as we want to be a, a salt that's a flavoring? Salt is also a preservative. A preservative pre prevents decay. It prevents Decay. Uh, this is the most common use when Jesus said that, that we're the salt of the earth. In that day, it would have been the most common use would have been as a preservative. There was no refrigeration. Um, you didn't have these refrigerated trucks. You could drive meat around from place to place. And so uh, pretty much if you wanted uh, certain items that would go bad over time, you had to you know, kill and slaughter an animal right then and there, and, and it would only last a, a short amount of time. But if you could salt it, the salt would draw out the moisture, and, and it would... Uh, create an environment where most bacteria couldn't survive and it would kill most of them off. And so it would preserve the meat by adding salt to it. So salt will be seen as a preservative. So how do we as disciples of Jesus help to preserve the earth? Well, how does salt do it? Salt preserves the earth how? Who, who knows the chemical process of how salt preserves the earth? Bueller? Bueller? Anybody? I have no idea. 
Uh, I didn't, because here, here, here's really the answer I'm looking for here. Salt preserves by being salty. I know I used the word in the definition, but that's okay. It's okay because I have the mic. Uh, but salt preserves by being salty. It's in its nature. Being what it is is how it does what it does. And if it loses that reality, if it becomes a look like what's around it instead of what it is as salt, then it doesn't work. That's why if salt loses its saltiness, what good is it? If salt all of a sudden becomes like any impurities that's, that it's around, well, what good is it? But if the salt is being salt and being salty, man, that's awesome. We can preserve our meat. If a disciple of Jesus is being a disciple of Jesus, man, that's awesome. That, that's going to bring about preservation in the earth. What's that mean? What's that look like? Well, salt will not preserve meat if it's never added to the situation. If you take a slab of beef, put it on the table, take a, a pile of salt, put it on the table, and they're separate from each other, and you come back in a week, you're going to have a rotted pile of meat and a pile of salt. Apart, the salt can't do its job. It's got to be applied to the meat. And same thing, if the salt loses its saltiness, it won't do its job. And so if it's like everything around, it won't do its job. And so as followers of Jesus, there's this question that comes up sometimes, how engaged in the life of the world are we called to be? Some would say, you know what, we, we need to be different than the world, and so we need to remove ourselves completely from anything that looks like the world, anything that would be contrary to God's. So we need to remove ourselves from all that had nothing to do with it, and we need to set up our own little town, and, and you get pictures like uh, Amish living, where you completely cut yourself off. And, you know, you can say, oh, I, I can't relate to that example, but you see this in other people's lives where um, everyone they know, all their family, all their friends, uh, the people they spend their time with, the people that they, they you know, they, they make sure that they're going from safe little Christian bubble to safe little Christian bubble, and, and they're staying in that pile of salt, and they're not doing anything to help preserve the meat that's sitting right next to them because they've, they've cut themselves off. And that's not what we're called to be. That's a salt not being salty. That's a disciple not being a disciple. So we're not called to separate ourselves from the world but we're also not called to look just like the world. The salt that, that looks like everything else around it then wouldn't be able to do what it can do. So we're called to live in the world, but not be of the world. We're called to be distinct, to be different than the world. One of the great verses we can, we can look at that begin with this is Romans 12, 2. The beginning of it says this, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Do not be conformed to this world. Don't conform to the ways that this world thinks. Don't live the way the world does, but, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It doesn't say get out of the world. It doesn't say don't interact with the world. We look at the life of Jesus. He did just the opposite. He, he engaged in the life of those who needed to know about him. And you know what's interesting? They liked being with him. They liked being with him. Can some of you guys think of Christian friends who you really don't care to be around maybe all the time because of how they engage and how they interact? If so, maybe you can lovingly share this, this point with them. Not trying to be an aha, I gotcha, but just lovingly say, hey, do you know when Jesus was, was with sinners, they liked being with him? That there was, there was a way that he engaged them that, that it was clear his love for them? So we're to live in this world not be of the world. We're still supposed to be separate and, and set apart in the way we live, but not removed from the situation altogether. It, it, one place we can begin, if you're unsure what this looks like, is with our mind. 
the things that we think, the things that we believe. We can hold our beliefs before God with an open hand because chances are there are some ways that we think about this world that are contrary to what God would have for us. There are probably desires and longings that we have in our mind that are probably contrary to what God would have for us. We need to be able to hold those things before God and say, this is what I believe to be true based off my understanding of who you are, God. And, and you know, I believe I got a lot of these right, but you know, some of these probably need to be changed. There's probably some things that I got wrong. Transform my mind. Help me to, to see who you are and, and understand truth. Because too often we, we get in this place where we pursue, we, we pursue temporary pleasures in the world over eternal joy. We, we get duped into seeing something shiny and thinking, hey, that's, that's something good. That, that's what I want. We chase after that. But all of a sudden we realize, no, no, it's, it's not all it cracks up to be. There was a, a, a point in my life where I used to be a youth pastor, and um, one of the things that I liked to do was, was find fun games to play on a, a weekly basis because um, my, my personal viewpoint is that um, on one hand, we're, we, by, we, I mean, our, our world is asking our youth to grow up too fast. Some of the, the issues that they're being faced with, um, they're not equipped to make those decisions. But in the same regard, they're still being faced with those decisions. And so I want to create a ministry that allowed them to have fun and be a kid, but also prepared them to make those, some of those adult decisions in a way that would honor God. And so I had this kind of dichotomy that, that, that would play off each other. And so one of the ways we could kind of have fun and be kids is by playing these silly games. And uh, there's this one game where I get a bunch of caramel apples, a bunch of apples just dipped in caramel, and we'd have an eating competition. So round one, we'd have some of the girls come up, and you know, there'd be three of them, and they'd be eating the caramel apple, and that whoever would eat the most in a certain amount of time, and someone would win, and that was all fun. And then we'd bring three guys up, we'd put three caramel apples in front of them, and we'd do the same thing. If you have seen guys in a competition, especially after um, junior high or high school age, ladies have just competed in that same thing, they're revved up, ready to go. They will not be uh, shown up. And so these guys pretty much inhale these apples in about you know, two bites. The funny thing is they weren't apples, they were onions. Um, so, <laughs> and so it took a while to kind of realize what they were eating because the caramel was still there. It was just uh, all over an onion. And you see that your words can claim one thing, but it's your experience that really will back it up, right? I told them it's a caramel apple. But their experience told them something else. And so when we look at our own lives, what are we telling people? Are we saying we're a Christian, but then the way that we treat them, the way we engage them, is that, is that telling a different story? Or does it still have that, that, that sweet caramel and apple when they, when they kind of engage in our life? And so don't they, you do back up who you claim to be. Are, are we engaging in their lives? Are we being salt that preserves? Uh, I was listening to a, a message. I, I didn't catch who it was that said this, this part of it, but basically they said that authenticity will be the new apologetic authenticity will be the new apologetic of our day. Basically, being true and genuine to who you claim to be is what's going to draw people to God. And so we need to renew our minds so that who we claim to be and our actions line up. We are the salt of the earth. Let us live authentically, different on purpose. We're also the light of the world. So salt is a flavor and it's a preservative where the light, light reveals what is hidden. Is one of the things it does. It, it makes truth known. Have you ever been afraid of the dark? Have you ever had those moments? I, I can say I have been. Maybe not so much afraid of the dark, but afraid of, of what I couldn't see. Uh, it was one of the more recent examples I had. I was driving down Spring Grove Road, 
and it was one of those uh, evenings where it's dark out already, uh, the sun's gone down, and then it's just foggy as all get up. And if you've ever driven in fog before, you know, your headlights, uh, they work still. You can see what's in front of you, but they don't project this far because they bounce off all the, the water droplets in, in the, the fog, and um, basically you can't see very far in front of you. And so on one hand, for the first three seconds, it's pretty cool because you feel like you're driving the Millennial Falcon where you have all these, you know, lines coming at you and you're in warp speed. But all of a sudden you realize, I, I can't see more than 100 feet in front of my vehicle. And I, I know there's markers on the road you can look for and sign. There's ways of knowing if you're on the road or not. You know, if you start getting a little bumpy, you know you've you made a wrong turn. Um, but I started thinking about all the things that could be out there that I can't see. And, and my mind just went crazy. I mean, just to get to this point, I'm like, what if there's some lady who's just, you know, want, has been wanting to try to find time to walk her dog. She doesn't care that it's foggy. She doesn't care that it's nighttime. This was her time to walk the dog. And there's someone, sweet mom, out walking a dog. If I, if I can't see them in time, you know, if they're kind of in the shoulder, if I'm too far away. I mean, all of a sudden, what was in the dark began to bring fear into my heart. Because I can't see what's in the dark. But light makes truth known. Darkness hides the truth, but light makes it known. As a disciple of Jesus, we are to make God's truth known. It's kind of a, um, it's a misnomer to put that title God's truth. But really, all truth is truth, right? All truth is God's truth. He's the one who established what is right, what is true. Someone else can say something else is true, but doesn't make it true. And so we're to make God's truth known. A couple of ways we can do that. One is become a student of God's word. First and foremost for ourselves to make sure that, that we're seeing God's word for what it is. Become a student of God's word. Another way we can make God's truth known is, is to love our brothers and sisters in faith well. If you're a follower of Christ, you can love other followers in Christ well. We see in John that, that they will know we are Christians by our love, by how we treat each other. So make sure that we are, are, are loving each other well. And in doing so, we're making the application of God's word known. And the, the way that we love others is a huge way to make God's love known. It is to shine light, to make truth known. Again, people wanted to be around Jesus. And what's amazing about that is he didn't water down the message. He didn't say, oh, you can do whatever you want. You can live however you want. No, he, he still brought truth. But he did it in such a way that made evidently clear that he loved them. And he was for them. And he had good things for them. And so he still stood for what was true. He still shined the light in the darkness. And all that was seen, good or bad, was revealed. But he did it in a way that, that showed such love. So light reveals what is hidden. How are we, as followers of Christ, making truth known, revealing what is hidden? I think sometimes when it comes to this, um, corporately, we kind of resort to policy over people. We go to policy over people. If we want to make what is known, or what is right known, we want to put light on it, we think, okay, well, we live in a democracy, so if I can get basically, you know, Christianity be the law of the land, then that, that'll change culture, and that culture will change the people. I'm not saying that, that there's anything wrong in, in following with your beliefs in, in the democratic process. I'd be in support of that. But that's not the first step when it comes to seeing lives changed. We can't begin with policy. We need to begin with people. It's not a changed culture that changes people, but it's a changed people that changes culture. 
So if you look at the world around you, say, hey, there are people who are living lives caught up in lies, that they're believing these lies that just aren't true, that they're pursuing things that aren't going to satisfy. And if it breaks your heart, hey, how can I bring about change? And so sometimes I think with good intentions, we go wrong steps and wrong directions, and we try to condemn, we try to uh, have all these policies in place. But honestly, we need to begin with the people. We need to show God's love to them and help reveal what is hidden in their lives. Hope is that by changing culture, we can change the people, but the truth is that changed people will bring about a changed culture. We can begin with the gospel. Uh, I love 1 Peter 3, verse 13. It says this, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? So if you're passionate about doing what is good, who's going to harm you? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, so even if there's someone who's going who's to make you suffer for doing what is good, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, verse 15 here, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks, for you, asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Always be ready. If anyone asks, why do you have this hope? Be able to give that answer. Why, why do you have hope in Jesus? Because I believe he's God, and here's why. Because I believe what he says matters, and here's what he calls me to. So if we're going to reveal what is hidden, and we see those situations, we want to see people's lives change as that light shines in some dark places, begin with the gospel. Begin with how Jesus has changed your life. Pray that they'll see that and desire that for themselves in their own lives. So light reveals what is hidden. Light pushes away darkness. It makes the way to the source known. But what's interesting, think about it, darkness really isn't even a thing. It isn't. We, we can't have a source of darkness. If you want it darker in here, you can't say, hey, can you go get a, a, a darkness source? Uh, just something that will bring more darkness in the room. Don't, don't get your brother. Just he's fine. Leave him alone. If it's, if just make it a little darker in here. What do you do? You turn down the source of light. You remove a source of light. You put out a source of light. There's no source of darkness. Darkness is the absence of light because light pushes away the darkness. There's sources of light and there's reflectors of light. Think of the sun and the moon. The sun is the source of the light and yet the moon lights up bright in the night sky because it reflects the light from the sun. In the same way, we are light of the world because we reflect the light of the world. In John 8, 12, Jesus says this. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So Jesus is the light of the world. He's saying that you, my followers, are the light of the world because we reflect Jesus. We, we make the way to him known by how we live our lives. Imagine a, a lighthouse. I don't know if that comes to mind for you. And everything about this light of the world, you know, I just instantly think of this lighthouse, you know, this light going out over the sea, showing uh, ships where there's safety and where there's not and all that kind of stuff. And I, I get to this point where I'm like, well, is that all I'm supposed to do is just stand there and be a light? Be like, yep, there's Jesus. I mean, what, what's my part in that? What's my role? And the more I thought about it and thought about how a lighthouse is set up, I'm like, actually, you know, there's a more active role in, in the life of the the, the Bulb, you know, it's, if you've ever seen a light, it's actually have it reflected so that all, all the light goes off one way. And so that bulb spinning around to continue to show where the lighthouse is. If that bulb just stopped backwards and just stood there and didn't spin, it'd be virtually useless. 
So there's still an active part in that light of continuing to cast that light into all the different corners and push back that darkness. And so yes, while we're reflecting the light of Jesus in our lives, we're still to have an active role in that. In short, we're called to obedience to the will of God in our lives. So for those of us who have found our hope in Jesus, who have said, Jesus, I, I know that I'm a sinner and that, that my sin separates, you from, uh, separates me from you, but I, I know that your death on the cross was a sufficient sacrifice, that it paid the price for my sins, and I trust in you, be, knowing that you are God, uh, to be my, my Lord, the leader of my life, and my Savior, the forgiver of my sins. That if you've made that step in your life, you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. We point others to the hope that we have in Jesus. That, that's, that's our role. But the question we have to ask as we wrap up here is, where, where is my hope right now? What is your hope in? Is it in yourself? Your own abilities and your own uh, strength to make something happen in life? Is your hope in your government? Do you, do you trust in them to build a world that will produce life for you? Is your hope in a current relationship? So yeah, you know, this relationship, where it's going, this is, this is what's going to make life better, is the person I'm with right now, my significant other. Is your hope in a future significant other? You know what, once I find this kind of person, all will be well. Are you with a significant other thinking the next significant other will be, well, I mean, if you have some other issues you got to work through there, if that's the case. Is your hope just in the universe? Hey, you know what? By chance, I just got to wait for that next big break. Here's all these different stories. People got their big break in life. I'm just waiting for my turn. I think I find many who, whose hope is placed in their religious beliefs. And while at first that may sound like a good thing, I think it can get hijacked. I've met some people who their hope is in a, a set of rules, a way of living that they inherited from their parents. Their parents lived a certain way. They're, okay, well, if I live this, the same way, I'll be good with God, Right? Or maybe you, you learned about a religion, and you're like, you know what, I like that. Those, those standards, those beliefs, those sound good. I can, get, I can jive with that. And so you adopt those, and you say, okay, this is, this is who I am. When it comes to Christianity, if you've done that, if you've taken that step, but never engaged with the person of Jesus, your hope has been hijacked. See, for what started as some as a pursuit of God kind of gets deterred some ways. We ask this question, what, what makes for a good Christian? Is it one who pursues and follows his Bible? Or is it one who pursues and follows Jesus? Pursuing and following God's word is a beautiful and great thing. And I, by no means am I diminishing it, saying don't do it. If anything, I'm elevating a relationship with Jesus. Honestly, what's in this book matters because of who Jesus is. It's not the other way around. And it's a similar challenge, I think, that, 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 that Jesus' audience would have had. Because as they're hearing all this, that, that they come from a Jewish background, and can maybe ask that same question. What, what makes for a, a good and faithful Jew? Is it one who pursues and follows the law? I mean, that would have been for many of them. They would say, well, we just got to follow and adhere to the law. Or is it one who pursues and follows God? There are some who are so focused on pursuing and following the God, uh, I'm sorry, pursuing and following the law, that when God was right before them, they missed it. They couldn't see him. Jesus kind of speaks to that a little bit. Verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So there is a change, but it's not a wiping away. It's a fulfillment of. 
For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. See, again, Jesus changes everything. And so to the Jewish audience who will be hearing what he's saying and realizing what he's talking about and who he's claiming to be, they say, okay, well, what about my old way of life? I had all, all my hope in following the law. What happens with that? Well, Jesus changes everything. In the weeks ahead, we're going to see that in some of the topics we're going to hit on. He starts with, hey, you have heard said. You've known to be true. This, is, this was your understanding, but I tell you this. And a lot of times, every time I'd say, here's what you knew to do. Let's talk about the condition of your heart. You knew to do this and then to not do that, but let's talk about the condition of your heart. And that's going to be in the weeks ahead as we continue to work through the Sermon on the Mount. Um, but Jesus is saying, I, I've come to fulfill the Old Testament. If you struggle with passages of the Old Testament, first of all, know this. You are not alone. If you find yourself reading your Bible, you come to a passage like, hey, this is, this is whack. This is wild. So I, I don't know. I didn't know that was in there. Man, I, I don't know what to do with this. I mean, can I, can I continue to live as a follower of Christ? There, there's some, some challenging verses in the Old Testament. When I come across those, you can dig into them, you can research them, and find uh, answers. And sometimes those answers are like, well, okay, I can kind of see this, but I'm still unsure. Well, I can see that Jesus lifted up the Old Testament since he's I'm not here to wipe it out, but to fulfill it. So he was basically say that we can hold on to this. Yes, we need to look at it now through a different lens. We need to look at it through the lens of Jesus because he's that fulfillment of it. So when you get some of those difficult passages, don't let that shake your faith to the point where you walk away. Let that push you more to Jesus and say, Jesus, help me to, to understand this and continue to dig it. And, and you don't have to be satisfied with, with a half answer. And, and you may not find a full answer this side of heaven. But if you begin to doubt because of some of those difficult passages, remember who Jesus is. It's okay, well, I'm at least with him. And he came to fulfill all this. So let me try to look at it through who he is and through that lens. But how is one made right with God? How, how, you know, is, is it the adherence to the law that the Jews were doing? Or what did Jesus change? Well, we keep reading in verse 20. It says this, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. If you were in that audience and you knew who the Pharisees and scribes are, which you would have as a faithful Jew, you knew basically he's saying, here's the people you see as following the law the best. The Pharisees put a law around the law. It's called putting a hedge around the Torah. The Torah would have been their law. Basically, if um, you were told, don't go more than 30 miles per hour down this street, you basically said, the law is do not go over 20 miles per hour down this street. Is that the law? No, the law is 30. But so that I don't break the law, I'm going to put a law around it so I don't even get close to it. And that's what they would do with, with the word of God. And so in their culture, they were viewed as, man, those are the ones who are righteous. But we see that their heart wasn't engaged with God. And actually, we're some of the main primary adversaries with Jesus when he walked this earth. But you see that, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow, way to suck all the hope out of the room, Jesus. Man, these are the guys we thought had it down, and now you're saying, unless we're more righteous than them? But see, from our vantage point, we can see where he's going with this. We know that in Jesus, we are made right 
when we trust in him. Basically saying that the law doesn't work to make you righteous. It just shows you how much you failed. It just shows you how much you need me. Yes, it paints a picture of how we can live following God, but ultimately it's not going to do anything to save us. And so even the Pharisees who were ones that see, hey, you're the ones that are nailing it on the law piece, but you're totally missing it on pursuing God. And so in essence, that's what he's calling them to, is, is, is a pursuit of him, an engagement of him. So when you think about your life and your future days, where, where is your hope? Is it in your own strength, in your own power? Is it in religion? A bunch of do's and don'ts or ways of spending your Sunday mornings or Wednesday evenings? Or is your hope primarily in a relationship with Jesus that makes you righteous before God and then sends you out as salt and light in this world? Let's pray. Father God, you are an amazing God. We thank you for who you are. We thank you uh, for what you call us to, to go and be salt and light. Father, I pray that um, for those of us who trust in you, Lord Jesus, that we would do that this week and the weeks ahead, that we continue to live more and more as salt and light, to show this world around us the hope that we have in you with the hope and the prayer that others would find that same hope. And Father, for those of us here who haven't trusted in you, for the forgiveness of sin, I pray that you would just continue to soften our hearts, continue to answer our questions, continue to meet with us and reveal yourself to us so that we could see you clearly for who you are, God Almighty, and that we could follow in the path you've laid before of surrendering to Jesus, confessing our sin and trusting in him for the forgiveness of sin. Praise all in your name. Amen. Mm-hmm.